Yo, what up? This is Dart Adams. This is Dart Against Humanity, episode 26. And this is Screaming A. Smith. Let me tell you something. Molly, Max, I am appalled. I'm pissed off. I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what's up with Aaron Boone. This man can't make a damn adjustment. He don't know what the hell to do. He's like a deer in headlights. You know damn well that Severino does not play well in the postseason. And you know that boy cannot go more than five against the Red Sox. This is a big game. Severino was solid. And he was probably their best starter in the regular season. And probably going back the last two seasons, Severino has been lights out. But Severino has not delivered in the postseason. Remember what the twins did to that boy? I, I I can't believe it. At first, here's the thing. Here's the thing that kills me, right? Aaron Boone. He's a rookie manager. He won a hundred games. But boy, do you see that lineup? All the mashes in there. I could win a hundred games with them cats. And the thing is. If he actually knew what the hell he was doing and made adjustments on time, they probably could have won 110 games. It's frustrating as hell when I see he leaves in pitches for too long. He is the wrong people in the game playing. And the other part is, did, he, did, did the Yankees ever watch baseball before this year? Typically, typically, I, I see that look in your face, Max. Typically, when you play baseball, you grow up studying the greats, right? You understand how the game is played. I mean, damn it, the ESPN Classic was around. I know some of these cats are young, but damn it, they got managers. They got people in A, AA, AAA. They could explain to them how baseball is played. Them boys do not take a damn pitch. They do not work to count. I grew up in a time where people played fundamental baseball, you know, you wait for your pitch. You try to work somebody, try to get a, the pitch count up, try to get an advantageous situation. These cats just hack. They just swing away. They hit 267 home runs this season. That was a Major League Baseball record. Do you know how long Major League Baseball been around? Since the damn 1800s. They set a record. Of course, now we play 162 games. The number of games varied from year to year. I think it topped out at 154. And then it was up to 162 recently. Check the record books. But that's a lot of home runs. But if them, if them boys ain't swinging for the fences and going over the short porch or leaving the yard, they ain't scoring runs. And in this series, oh my God. In this series, they could not get a damn hit. With runners in scoring position to save their lives. Now the Red Sox bullpen is shaky. They are suspect. But they got the job done because Alex Cora made the necessary adjustments and put people in position to win and get out. Alex Cora is a rookie as well. But he was the bench coach last year, the world champion Houston Astros. He was he made better adjustments, quicker adjustments, and he pulled people sooner. He was not shook. I don't know what the hell Aaron Boone was doing. The reason why the Red Sox are advancing is because they actually play more fundamental ball. And Alex Cora was able to make the necessary adjustments at the necessary time. And that's why... And the Red Sox were head and shoulders above the Yankees during the regular season. No, 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 no. Let's not get that twisted. They aired them boys out. The season series would have been even more lopsided had it not been for the fact the Red Sox decided to rest a couple times. That last series that they played in New York, they conceded two of those games. The game that got switched over because of the time difference, they just let. That game happened. And they almost won it. They had the bench in. The second game, they kind of wanted it, but they let it get away. Then the third game, they actually played. And they won. And they had a celebration in Yankee Stadium. And last night, they had another celebration in Yankee Stadium. It pains me.
as a lifelong New Yorker and a New York Knicks fan to know that the Boston Red Sox have had more big wins in Yankee Stadium than the damn Yankees had. I'm appalled. I'm beside myself with grief. Molly, Molly, pass me a damn tissue. So, you know, that's screaming A. Smith's take on the whole situation, which is, I, I, I kind of, I understand, I rock with it. There are a lot of um, Yankees fans who I sort of empathize with, but not all the way because it's the Yankees, fuck them. But you got cats like Joyce McFly, who, the thing about him is that one of the things that being a brown person who's part of a fandom that people don't necessarily always acknowledge, he's probably one of the most visible brown Yankees fans. Dominican dude has a a, a YouTube page. He live streams Yankees games. He goes to games with people, with his people. Uh, like if you watch the YES promos, you actually, they use his face sometimes. Red Sox fans, if you don't know who George McFly is, he's the dude who's famous for his reaction after um, Devers hit that home run. Like he was waiting for the out to happen, and then Devers hits the home run, and he makes that reaction, and it like made ESPN. That's George McFly. Now, he's probably one of the most visible brown Yankees fans for a fandom that people always peg as white, but those of us that actually know brown people, and the thing is that like in New York, Everybody, you can't go. You can't say there are no black, Dominican, Puerto Rican, Asian New Yorkers. People will look at you like you're crazy because New York is huge. However, on this side, people are under the impression that there are no black, Latino, or even Asian, or maybe Asian, uh, Bostonians, Massachusetts residents, New Englanders. So they think they can say whatever the fuck they want about the fandom. And there's going to be no repercussions. I let people know from jump. No, I'll slap the shit out of you. I'm going to embarrass you publicly over that. And I'm sick of the erasure. So, like, on that front, as far as George McFly is concerned, like, how does somebody only ha- how somebody like that have less than 5,000 subscribers on YouTube as a visible Yankees fan? I, you know what I'm saying? Look at how big that fandom is, how big New York is. That's nuts. But on the other side, if you watch any documentary about the Red Sox, uh, if you go on YouTube or you have the ESPN app or whatever the hell, or HBO, came on HBO. So if you've ever watched the Curse of the Bambino documentary by HBO or watched the uh, Curse Reversed documentary, which was the update after the Red Sox won the 2004 um, ALCS, and they came back down from 30443. I'm pretty sure there was only one black person in that entire um doc. I'm going to my room that actually interjected about the Red Sox. And that would be Howard Bryant, who talked about the history of the Red Sox for um black folks and how growing up in Dorchester when he was young. He never actually went to Fenway Park and none of the black folks were like, we're going to go or actively were like into the games because it wasn't a place that we went, Fenway Park. He's older than me. I was born in 1975. My first trip to Fenway Park was 1987. I went to Fenway Park because my older brother had a job with his boy Ron. They went to Boston Latin. He got a job at Fenway Park with Ron. So it was like spring, summer, 87. And it was during the 87 season after they'd gone to the World Series. And it was a down year. But that year they got um, Sam Burke. I mean, they got uh, Sam Horn and Ellis Burks. So like they had these two young black guys. And like Dave and Ron used to hang out with them. And I believe they had uh, Lee Smith, or was that leader? I think he worked there from 87 to 88. But the first time I ever went to Fenway Park myself was when my brother walked to Fenway Park. And I went with him to pick up his check. 
And he brought me into the stadium, showed me around. I met people. And then he had me walk out onto the field. And he was like, all right, now turn around and look up. And that's the first time I saw the green monster up close. And I got to see what the Boston outfielder saw. I've been watching Boston Red Sox games since 1978. I've told the story. October 2nd, 1978 was the day my heart was broken by the Boston Red Sox losing to the New York Yankees, who I've hated ever since. 40 years of hatred of the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox between, I say, 2003, 2004. Over the last 15 seasons, I think the Boston Red Sox have been more successful than the Yankees. And I'm not 100% sure, but if I check the record, I don't want to do all that math, but I'm pretty sure I'll do it because I'm me. I'm pretty sure that they uh, won the season series accumulated over the last 15 seasons, going back to 2003 to now. Uh, They probably, I'm not 100% sure that they might have either an equal or a better record than them over the last 15 years. They've definitely won the AL East probably over the last five, eight seasons. I think they probably won it more than they have. So it's kind of a reversal of fortune. And the other weird part is that you kind of see the, um, the franchises going in this weird, odd path because they kind of remind me of how the Red Sox used to be um, configured, the Yankees now. And actually somebody else who would be way better than me at explaining that would actually be Sterling Sharp. Um, I have a vein in my forehead. It's throbbing. Did you see the game last night? Did you see the game last night? Skip. I don't understand what the hell was going on. First off, when you're a manager, it's your job to put players in position to win. It's your job to, if you see that your pitcher isn't performing up to snuff, you have to yank him immediately and replace him with somebody. The New York Yankees pride themselves on their bullpen all season long. They pride themselves on their middle relief and their bullpen. That was their strength. Matter of fact, it was to the point where if you had a starter and that starter went 5-6, that was good enough. Yank them out, put one of the relievers in. They're supposed to, they were reliable all season long, except for a couple places where they had key hiccups. But they still managed to win 100 games, even though they went cold in certain stretches of the season. And they lost a bunch of games to teams they should have beaten, which is always the mark that the team's going to fourth in the playoffs. However, the Yankees fans try to tell them, try to tell them, I don't know. Y'all boys lost a lot of games to the weakest teams in the AL East and the AL Central and the AL West. But no, 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 no. They don't want to hit. They believe that all they need to do is line up them boys with all them damn home runs and the ball going to leave the park. And once that ball leave the park, it's game over. But here's the problem. You got to get people on base, baby. <laughs> and the thing is about the Yankees, the Yankees don't run. Now, It cracks me up because when I was coming up, I remember the Boston Red Sox, they used to just get them big boys in the lineup, the ones with the lumbar, right? And they used to just hit home runs, hit home runs. They would just go out, get them off, hit home runs right over the wall, knock them off that wall all day. And it looks like the Yankees done took a page out of the old Red Sox book. Slow cats, don't run, hit home runs. Now, the Yankees got some young talent on that roster but did you see the record that the Red Sox had running on the Yankees how many stolen bases they had how many times they've been thrown out look at the defense on the other side the Red Sox actually won the first game because of Sandy Leone's defense Sandy Leone he he might as well had a, a, a piece of spaghetti 
in his hand, a wet noodle in his hand, because he wasn't going to do nothing with that bat. But Sandy Leon won him that first game with his defense. That's crazy, right? And then on the other side, you got Alex Cora, who should be AL Manager of the Year. I believe he should be getting that hardware. He made all the right moves at all the right times. He made the necessary adjustments after he saw his boy couldn't get the job done in game two. It's really unfortunate because that man was lights out down the, down the end of the season. They spent so much money on that kid. And then when it comes down to the postseason, he just don't have it. But here's the thing on the other side. Severino never had it in the postseason. But they trotted him out there. And he has a terrible record against the Red Sox. Just the same way the, the Yankees line up. They saw meat. They saw barbecue chicken. When they saw that man on the, on the mound. Dave Price is going to have to come out the bullpen. I don't know if they're going to have him start, start, start a game. Because he might have success against the Houston Astros that he didn't have against the Yankees. And if he was to give them a good game, that would boost their confidence. But Alex Cora went for the juggler. And I respect it. In the eighth inning, he put Sale out there to shut that team down. To get. To the closer who almost dropped the ball entirely but that's another story the Yankees had not swung the bat well it took almost a disastrous just performance before they gave the game up that's how out of the game the Yankees were in the ninth inning at home they kept the game close. And the Red Sox had opportunities to put this game away. They had bases loaded in the first. Had bases loaded in the eighth. But the Yankees relievers actually got out of both innings without incident. So they only put four, game, four runs up. And that fourth run was key. Giving up that home run to Vasquez. Who you do not expect much out of offensively. How many home runs did that boy hit all season? Not a lot. But that was a huge home run. And that fourth run should not have been the clincher in Yankee Stadium with all the mashes they got in that lineup. Nobody left the yard. John Carlos Stanton did nothing. Is that what they bought that belt boy here for? John Carlo showed up just about as much as Sandy Leone. Actually, no, because Sandy Leone actually won his team a game. John Carlo ain't do nothing. And Aaron Judge. Okay, Skip. Skip, I, I'm going to bring this up before you get a chance to. When Aaron Judge decided to play New York, New York in front of the Red Sox, that might have been one of the dumbest moves in recent memory. You don't go tugging on Superman's cape. Oh, I know you're not a Superman fan, so I'm going to revise that. You don't go tugging on Batman's cape. Because Batman has actually kicked Superman's ass recently. Several times. Solo. So when you look at it all, was the Yankees season a bust? Well, here's the thing. They won 100 games. They set a record for home runs. They had a manager who mismanaged it every turn. And they still managed to win 100 games. But they are also in the same AL that contains the Boston Red Sox and the Houston Astros. So I don't think the season was a bust, but in New York, it's championship or bust. Just like if you were in any, any market where you actually have high expectations. But you have to look at it for what it is. The Red Sox and the Astros were the better teams. The better teams advance. Now the Yankees going to have a lot of questions and they're going to have a lot of Things to do with their roast with their roster and their rotation. And they have a lot of people that won games in the regular season who don't necessarily perform in the offseason. CC Sabathia is done. 
CC Sabathia being out trotted out there in game four, somebody else should have pitched that game. That boy did he barely made it through three. He threw what 59, 59 pitches. It seemed like 80. Skip, I, I don't I don't get it. I don't get it. But um the Red Sox versus the Houston Astros, that's gonna be a series. I don't exactly know who's gonna win, but it's gonna be entertaining. Yeah, so I'm just glad it's over because I'm like bullying Merrill through Twitter because I can. And throughout this entire stretch of five days or a week, whatever it's been, it's just been a lot of Yankees fans and New Yorkers saying they wanted the Red Sox or they're going to beat us in the postseason or the the Red Sox are trash and, and Porcello be throwing meatballs or whatever and a lot of keep that same energy talk. Now that y'all got your ass whooped twice at home, keep that same energy. I'm from Boston. I always have this energy. When you're from Lower Roxbury, I al- you always have this energy. I've, I'm war all day. I do this all the time. I want smoke all the time. I'm still going to be standing at the end of it. Don't dish it if you can't take it. So, that's what that is. I'm really relieved that this series is over because here's the thing. The Houston Astros and the Red Sox, I don't know, again, who's going to win the series. With the Red Sox and the Yankees, I hope the Red Sox would perform given how shaky the bullpen was and how the Yankees actually had confidence, but the Yankees don't really play a all-around game. Or again, run, or sometimes their defense falters, or you can rely on Aaron Boone to not make the right decision. It's a thing that um I learned from Chess and Bill Belichick. Don't stop your opponent when they're making a mistake. Do not stop your opponent when they're about to make a mistake. The Boston Red Sox thrived on Aaron Boone's mismanagement of his roster and situations. The Yankees could not get a hit, a clutch hit with runners in scoring position to save their lives. The Red Sox last night left 10 men on base, whereas the Yankees only left five. But the thing is, I believe the Yankees had three men on base in the ninth. So they had two men on base before that. And before that, I think they only had like three hits all game because the bullpen actually showed up and the bullpen supposed to be trash. But Alex Cora put in the right people at the right time to minimize that. And you have to remember that um, Porcello only pitched into what, like the sixth. He went five full. So it's not like Porcello pitched eight innings. There were plenty of opportunities to tee off on the Red Sox. Brazier showed up, you know. They didn't, I don't even think they put Workman in the game. You didn't see Joe Kelly. So those guys who actually showed up in game three. So those guys can show up in game one versus Houston. I have to look at the schedule and everything else. But again, the other part that I'm relieved about with the Red Sox and Houston Astros, even though it's going to be a tough series and I really want them to win, but I don't 100% know what's going to happen, is that Houston fans don't have anywhere of the entitlement that Yankees fans have. So it's not going to be a big online back and forth. I'm not going to be texted by my Houston people talking trash. Like, that's not going to happen. Plus, there's no real enmity between Boston and Houston like there is between Boston and New York. We got cousins in New York. I got family in New York. I got I know people that moved here from New York. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a history of tension between Boston and New York in regards to everything. Because sometimes they're in your shadow, sometimes they're in our shadow, depending on what the situation is. In Houston, that's not a situation at all. 
Houston doesn't have a long history of success when it comes to baseball or a long storied franchise, even though it's had like some stuff happen, you know, but like, it's not like a hundred twenty years. Like, uh, the anniversary of the 115th, because there have been 115 World Series. Well, not 115, because I think there are years there were no World Series. But the 115th anniversary of the first World Series is coming up. That's 1903, and the Red Sox won it. I believe five games to three. Because it was a nine-game series back then, and then from then on, they, they couldn't negotiate it being nine games again, so they just made it seven. So... We're coming up on the 115th anniversary of the first World Series, which, which Boston won at the Huntington Avenue grounds, which is now on the campus of um, Northeastern University. But you have that. Then you have the 100th anniversary of the 1918 World Series, which actually passed because I think it happened in September. Like a season was shorter or something for some odd reason. I don't understand why. But we have the, the then we're going to the 40th anniversary of the Red Sox losing the first game series versus the um the one game series in Fenway versus the Yankees, which I talked about earlier. But then we also have the 15th anniversary of them losing the um ALCS versus the Yankees due to I believe Aaron Boone, which that was another thing that was kind of exercised last night. But then we also have the fifth the fifth year anniversary of the Red Sox winning their last World Series. So there's a whole lot of history and parallel stuff going on. So yeah, there's that. One thing that I also want to discuss is like cats always want to write a list. But they don't have the necessary background to do it. And it's annoying. And online rap discussions are trash. They're basically a waste of time. It's basically like. And this is weird because me being a, like a, a historian and like a rap expert and being old. I don't see this happen in, in so many other fields where people who are casual fans think that they're experts and they argue with experts and they know so little that they think they're winning the argument when they haven't made a point. But they're so delusional that they think that we're saying nothing. It's really weird. It would be like Eating a box of Cocoa Puffs, but acting as if that was the most nutrients you could possibly get or you were fueling your body in the most efficient manner. And you tell you no. And you're like, no, this is it. The conversation goes nowhere. You're, you're just pretty much talking to a brick wall. So that's a lot of Twitter discussions. And it's weird because... Back in the days, you could embarrass somebody on Twitter by using facts and information and shut them down and shut them up. And everybody goes, ah, but now you can do it in a certain corner of Twitter's like, ah, yeah, you shut them up. But then there's a whole slew of trolls and other idiots that back them up because they don't know anything either. That's when things get like completely frustrating. And it's like, I don't want to have to deal with that at all. It's, it's really sad and confusing and disappointing. <sighs> but October is interesting because October 14th, 1988 is the 30th anniversary of the day the arcade game Ninja Gaiden came out. Now, here's the thing, right? A lot of people love Ninja Gaiden. They claim they love Ninja Gaiden. They've been a fan of the franchise. 
they grew up with it, blah, blah, blah. I'm talking about the arcade game. The arcade game does not have the following or the love and, and widespread acceptance or popularity that the franchise does that started uh, February 1989 or March. It came out March. March 1989 on the NES. Okay? Way better game, way faster, uh, better storyline. I think the graphics, the the cinema screens really drew people in and made the game way more than it was. It endeared it to an entire fan base. If they would have made... Okay, for instance, like if you have MAME on your computer or your PC, what have you, a handheld device, because a lot of y'all are nerds and you listen to this podcast. If you play Ninja Gaiden on that... I guarantee you it's just not as enjoyable as it is playing the NES version or versions. And I was terrible at the NES versions because it's a hard game. It involves a lot of jumping and slashing and shit like that. I'm not not a fan. Give me an RPG. I'm dumb. Um, I'm smart dumb. So I just wasn't great at Ninja Gaiden. Plus, I thought it was too slow. And the thing is that like beat 'em ups that are kind of methodical and slow. If the if the uh, if the rounds or the uh, the areas are relatively short, I could deal with. Like I like Vigilante. Vigilante, you're not exactly moving super fast. I'm not a huge fan of bad dudes, but I used to play it. I think the arcade version is better than the NES version. I, the NES version, I'm good on, even though I owned it. But as far as Ninja Gaiden is concerned, the thing that really drew people in was when they made the NES version. A piece I'm working on too. Actually, I'm not going to talk about the piece I'm working on because I want to be able to sell it. And if I talk about it here, someone's going to try to steal it. Actually, no one's really going to try to steal it because here's the thing. It's going to be too much work for somebody to do. This is it. That's fresh. That's weird too, right? If I said I'm going to do a piece on this, I'm kind of I can. The fact of the matter is I'm I'm not worried. Somebody's going to say, oh, that's a great idea. And then go do all the research and write it because I've done 90 percent of the research already. And I've had the idea already and have have it fleshed out in my head. I just want somebody to pay me for it. They're not going to start from zero to take my idea and rush it out because it's going to be terrible. And it's just too much work. So. I have like a month to get it together. I'm going to write it in five days. Well, I'm going to write it in three and then I'm going to say it's five. But um, I'm going to get it together and then I'm going to pitch it to some people to try to see who will pay me for it. I'll talk about that later when it's closer. I have another piece that's about to go up. I'm not going to talk about until it finally does come up. I'm waiting for that to drop. Now, there's something else. I know what it is. So I actually did a Skype interview years ago. Um, for a friend of mine and he wanted to write a piece about beat tape culture and the history and lineage of beat tapes so he interviewed certain knowledgeable people I was one of them and in it I interjected that the entire history of beat culture can actually be traced back 35 years ago to the Zulu beat show on WHBI which was DJ Jazzy J um his record boy slash protege, uh, cool DJ Red Alert, and his boy Donald D. Donald D., who also was in the B Boys, which were on Entertainment, but was also um, down later down with Ice T's um, Rhyme Syndicate through um, Africa Islam. Because those of you that aren't aware, Ice T was Zulu Nation. Fun fact if you didn't know that. And also that weighed into how the whole LL Cool J Ice T beef got um squashed. Long story. It's a lot of backstory. It's a lot of hip hop shit. Did if you're a casual rap fan, you don't care about. If you're a head, you know. Okay. So the reason that I bring that up is because that show involves 
a lot of tapes recorded from jams, a lot of beats that were recorded, a lot of sessions that were played on the air. And the thing is that people who are heavily into just beats, just beats, just sounds, just vibing out to this stuff, they would record the show. And they heard nothing like it. I think at the same time, um, World Framer Supreme Team was at WHBI. I don't know if they had a show around the same time or the day before or what have you. But I think Mr. Magic was. I'm not 100% sure. I need to look that up. But or who was at WBLS? But the thing is that that show starting in 1983. I don't know if it was February or March 1983. It was one of the two. I was actually trying to research the start date of this and I was frustrated because I couldn't find definitive material. Although during the search, I did find the actual recording that announced the date that they aired um, Wild Style for the first time. I found that date. And the crazy thing is that I got hit up on um, IG and it turned out to be Pete Nice. And Pete Nice actually showed, had a flyer from that date that they actually did that screening to confirm I was right. If you had any idea how much research I did and I didn't have access to, uh, I didn't have access to archives or anything like that. So, but I knew where to look and I knew how to look because I'm old and I've done this for years. So I was able to find the date that it premiered. And the thing is that I couldn't sell it to anybody or write a piece about it to anybody because nobody cares about hip-hop culture like that. So, of course, I did a post on Instagram. Doing a piece about hip-hop culture and posting it to my Instagram is the kind of sad sideways equivalent to me spending time writing a piece that should be bought and sold and and put out there by a supposed rap or hip-hop publication. And it ended up on medium. So that happened. But yeah, um, I discussed how that was the, the beginnings of beat culture. And then I also talked about early instrumental projects that were on vinyl, the drum crazy stuff, uh, the Nubian cracker stuff. Uh, um, oh, yeah. DJ Mark, the 45 Kings color series. The break, lost break beats, all that stuff. Um, he already knew about like starting back at the um Winley, the Winley breaks. I talked about the Drum Crazy series, um, Simon Harris's uh, releases. So the whole beat culture was really interesting back then because we were always looking for beats. And then one of the other things that I think I mentioned. Along with those things that nobody else ever t- uh, discussed to him, with him, um, was there was a tape that came out in 1988 that was produced entirely by Todd Terry under the guy's royal house. The album was called Can You Party? On Can You Party, there were several instrumentals that cats used to either dance to or freestyle to, like The Chase or Yeah Buddy. Um... Party People, which was more of like a house dance track. But it was a pretty popular tape, uh, vinyl, in 1988. But it's kind of gone um, obscured in recent memory, in recent times. Because I don't think it's been reissued. I need to actually search that and make sure I'm right. But I'm pretty sure it hasn't been like reissued or like no one's made it a point to for for whatever reason. Again... These are things that only I'm going to talk about on a podcast. But the reason why I mention that is because that's something that I've always been looking to, um, you know, do a piece about. But the thing is that somebody got to pay me. I got to somebody got to pay. I got to have a job or something for me to just like go ahead and just write that and just drop it. Because when um when homie did it, he wrote a two part article for fact magazine and the crazy thing is that um when the article got written for fact magazine the two-parter my contributions were left out so i didn't know that he had done it already 
And the reason I'm ta- talking about it now is because I just now discovered that he um, not only published it, but he went online and he actually put it on his website um, my actual contributions to the article. I discovered this two days ago. So, um, the site's called Bring the Beat Back. It's a, a boom bap continuum, a short history of beat tapes. Then he wrote, so what happened was, um, someone wrote a piece about post Dilla beat tapes, which I was like, what? So then he uh, pitched the article to fact about talking about the history of beat tapes. And so... What he writes is, while the online boom of beat tapes begins to take shape, parts of the underground continue to turn out metaphysical releases clearly inspired by the practice. Most notable among these are Wajid in Detroit with the BPM instrumentals 12 inches in 2003, the highly slept on can kick, Amon Contacts beats from Bina House's LP released on Prefuse's Eastern Development label in 2003, and Madlib's brother Oh No with Dr. No's Experiment in 2007 kickstarting a series of beat tapes as instrumental albums. Egon's Now Again label would in fact take the concept one step further with its Versus Now Again series by opening its archives to producers like Ono and using the results as Modern Library for Sync. I believe they also did one with Maker that I have. This is amazing. So then he talks about the people whose contributions were actually left out or omitted from the longer pieces that he did. In addition to this, a few people on Twitter got in touch with I got in touch with to point out some releases that might be relevant to the story as well as omissions. If anyone else has anything solid that would like to contribute to filling the gaps in the story of B tapes, please get in touch. Wrong Tom mentions the 1987 release of BDP's Criminal Minded Hot Club Versions is another early instance of a fully instrumental album. According to Tom, Chill Bill grew frustrated with having to press dub plates for the live shows and instead cut the whole album as instrumentals used live. Considering the popularity of the release, it was then a small leap in logic to release it and cash in. As any Hot Club Versions is a slightly different type of instrumental release, but it definitely fits somewhere in the history of beat tapes. If anyone has exact detailed sources for the Chill Bill story, please let me know. Dart Adams, Forest Part, pointed out the Zulu Beat Show was started on HBI in 1983 as an important omission in the early parts of the history. I actually remember reading about the show somewhere, but finding, so- but finding solid historical information is going to require a bit more research than a quick Google search. Hi, I'm Dart Adams. More on that later than... More on that than later than... I don't know what that... And then... In the meantime, same again. What If you know of anything relevant, please let me know. Dart then also pointed out a bunch of releases from the 80s worthy of inclusion, such as the Tough City Breaks 45 Kings color series, which was actually the first draft of the article, but I opted to focus on the 1980 album, 1988 album instead. Uh, I believe that's uh, Master of the Game. Um, Simon Harris's Drum Crazy and Royal House's Can You Party album from 1988. Then he goes on to write, all of which definitely adds to my idea that the late 80s is when the first releases that bear any resemblance to what we can come to think of as instrumental hip hop started to appear. There's more to it than that, of course. For one, I'm pretty sure that instrumental electro releases predate some of these mainly NYC East Coast releases by a few years. Still, it's something worth underlining, and I'll return to this in the future as I do more research and flesh out the history of the beat tape instrumental hip hop releases. Now, since that time, I was given uh, the imprint label producers I know. Actually, I was I've always been under um, operation of producers I know since October twelfth, two thousand and ten. This is my memory. Um, I believe it's October twelfth, two thousand and ten, when the keys were actually passed to me for producers I know, and I started working with people and. A&Ring, executive producing, uh, helping to sequence and put together beat tapes. Um, then eventually what happened was about 2012 or 13, I started putting them on the producers I know band camp as well because I would work with people on their projects and they would put them on their band camps. So I have a laundry list. I have the list somewhere of about 75 beat tapes that I was either executive produced, produced, sequenced, named the beats, uh, suggested sample sources, uh, helped to uh, curate the, the tapes. And I hate the phrase curation, but damn it, it was a curation. 
if house shoes can curate, I can curate. But other people say they curate, don't know what the hell they're doing. I it, when in my case is actual curation. I'm saying this word. Um, but then what happened was in 2015. Yeah, it was 2000. So in 2015, for October 2015, I wanted to do a fifth anniversary release. In 2013, there was actually a beat tape that I wanted to do. It was going to be 25 beats from five different uh, subgenres of 80s music. And I wanted to give 12 to 15 producers that I thought were dope the opportunity to chop these sample sources. What happened was a lot of them were busy. Some of them were on tour. Some of them weren't feeling the source. It wasn't their speed, which really snapped me back to think, hey, just because it's something you think that they would body doesn't necessarily mean they'd feel it. And it kind of changed the way that I did my, it was, a, it was a mistake, but it was a crucial thing because it made me understand that that's not necessarily how collaboration should be done going forward. And I don't do that anymore. So what happened was during that entire stretch of a month and a half, I only got 10 beats back that were I got like 15 beats, but 10 actually sounded like something I would release because some of the people just was like, yeah, here's, here's my flip. And I was like, this ain't, this ain't it, this ain't it, partner. But I got 10 solid joints that I kept in a folder for two years. So for the fifth anniversary of producers I know, I put them on my band camp and I called it the 80s beat tape. And I just put it out. And I put a couple of the, the, the two top joints that I thought were the hottest on my um, SoundCloud, which I don't really do. I don't really give a fuck about SoundCloud. I haven't cared about SoundCloud in a long time. It, like, it went to shit around 2013, 2014. By 2015, I was kind of through with it. If you were around for the early days of SoundCloud, you understand what I'm talking about. Otherwise, you're like, what? It was hot. It was popping on SoundCloud in 2013, 2014. What are you talking about? You weren't there for the early days when Bandcamp and SoundCloud were like new. Anyways, I put it out. I just put it out to put it out. I kind of talked about it on Twitter a little bit. I start getting DMs. I start getting people hitting me up. As I got getting people going crazy for it, I start seeing the numbers for some of these beats on um, the SoundCloud actually fly up and people are uh, reposting it, reposting it. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? And what I immediately decide to do, because I get hit up by um, a couple of people and then I get hit up by Fat Beats. They're like, yo, you want to put that out? And I look, I'm like, no, I want to put this out. Like, for one thing, I think I hit it by FWMJ. He's like, yo, why'd you put that out without hitting me up to make cover art for it? I'm like, dude, this isn't, this isn't, this ain't it. Like, this is dope for what it is, but I did not put this out with the intent to distribute it. Like, this ain't going to be what I put out. So what I did was I went back and I, re I said what the sample sources were for each beat because I did not want to distribute that or sell it, but I leveraged it. I went back to Fat Beats and I was just like, yo, if you want me to put something out, I have these projects from these producers that are made specifically to put out. You can't put that out because I already told everybody what the sample sources are, so you can't release that. So what people thought, well, why'd you do that was me actually playing chess. So they rock with it and I got the producers I know imprint. And I put out eight cassette tapes between 2015 and 2016. And I haven't put one out since. Because I realized what being a record label entailed. And I didn't 100% want to do that. And also, if I'm going to be a record label, I want to generate enough income where I can pay everybody handsomely for their contributions. As opposed to like a chunk now and then lunch money from then on. Which is when you put out eight beat tapes and you see the residuals from three months, what happens. So for anybody wondering, hey, how come Dart Adams hasn't put out another project on producers I know since 2016? <sighs> Ask somebody who owns a label and deals with a distributor 
and costs and overhead and budgets why they only put out so many releases a year and why only certain labels put out certain releases and why certain labels haven't put out too many albums recently ask them go and ask I have I've talked to several other label owners yep and I actually spend a good chunk of my time actually trying to shop deals for albums or find homes for albums that aren't mine that I don't have any real involvement in except for um, consultation so that's another thing if making money strictly as a writer is would be hilarious for me if I relied on the money I made for writing about hip hop culture I'd be dead. I believe I mentioned that before. And I think in the life of a creative podcast back in um, number eight. But yeah, man. And it's not about a hustle. Or, or, or trying to secure the bag. It's about survival and living within your means. But also it's about me having the opportunity to write pieces that I know are going to be, they're going to resonate with audiences that I can execute well, that I can do over a long period of time. I could stand in front of a class and discuss these subjects in detail and bring them to life, which is what I'd love to do, which would be my dream. But I got to work on that. So just like everybody in New York all week was telling me and telling all Red Sox fans and Red Sox Nation to keep that same energy. That's what I do all the time. Nonstop. The switch is broke. The safety's off. (laughs) 